0: Luke chapter 21, and we are starting in verse five and reading the whole way through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse five. And while some were speaking to the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, "As for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Well, this morning we are continuing in our study of this portion of Luke chapter 21, a portion commonly called the Olivet Discourse. We began our study of this discourse last week looking at verses 5 through 24. And if you were not with us last week, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. I am not today, because of time, going to recount or review much of what was said last week, other than to say this. I mentioned how there is and there has been throughout the history of the church a great discussion as to whether or not the entire Olivet Discourse is in reference to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus seized the city, destroyed the temple, and dispersed the Jews, or if in verse 25 Jesus turns his attention away from the fall of Jerusalem and begins to speak of his second final coming at the end of the age. And now as we look at these verses, verses 25 through 38, I do have to make it clear what my own thinking is concerning this discussion. And it is my opinion that here in verses 25 through 38, Jesus is still speaking of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That is the immediate context. That is what is at the forefront of his mind as he speaks to the disciples. And yet, despite the reality that that is the immediate context, I do believe Jesus has an eye towards his second coming when he will return to judge the living and the dead. In other words, beloved, I believe Jesus, in a sense, is speaking of both events, both the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and his final return. We have to understand something, the, the nature of biblical prophecy has often been that there is what is called an immediate fulfillment and a far-off fulfillment. It is a common pattern throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus, being the greatest of all prophets, the one who is himself the full revelation of God to us, the very word of God in the flesh, follows that historic pattern of prophecy. We have no reason to expect that Jesus would not follow the pattern of Old Testament prophecy. After all, the Old Testament is... His inspired word. And so in light of the nature of biblical prophecy, I think we can say without sort of trying to find some kind of middle path which skirts the issue, I think we can say that in the immediate context, Jesus is speaking of the events of 70 AD, 70 AD, even in verses 25 to 38, while also speaking of the final day. Of judgment. In my study on this passage and the nature of Christ's prophetic language that he uses in this text, I found Philip Ryken to be incredibly helpful in navigating this. He writes in his commentary on Luke, as a prophet speaks to the people of his own day, he looks to the future. He sees a time of judgment coming, a righteous, disaster that will strike his own people if they do not repent. But this disaster is set against the backdrop of the last of all days when God himself will come to judge the world. Listening to these prophecies of judgment, both near and far, is something like looking at a mountain range in the far horizon from a from a distance, it is hard to distinguish the mountains from the foothills. They all seem to be to blend together. But once you reach the foothills, it is easy to see that there are higher mountains still to climb. So it is with prophetic literature. The prophet sees beyond the foothills of approaching judgment to the mountains of the last judgment of all. This perspective help explains Uh, helps to explain why the Old Testament prophets so often sound as if they are talking about the end of the world. It is because they are talking about the end of the world. They are looking at the whole mountain range of judgment, viewing the events of their own times in the context of final judgment. Beloved, let me take what Rikens says and apply it here. The events of 70 A.D., the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the scattering of the Jews. You might say those events are the foothills of divine judgment. Beyond those foothills, though, lie the great peaks of the final day of judgment. And so I think Christ has both the foothills and the peaks in his sights here. He's discussing a penultimate, a secondary Ultimate, a penultimate day of judgment against the Jews for rejecting him. That is what 70 AD is all about. And he is also speaking of the ultimate day of judgment, the day of his final return when he will judge the entire world for their rejection of him. That is the best way I can make sense of this passage, beloved. Not only this passage, but also the parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And I do approach this text humbly. I approach it knowing that for sure I am missing something. And I encourage you, if you have come down hard on a position concerning this passage, I encourage you to stay humble and teachable. Again, please recognize that the exact meaning of this text has been debated by faithful Christians for 2,000 years now. Who are we, beloved, other than finite creatures attempting to explore the self-revelation of the infinite God? Let that reality humble you as you come to difficult texts like this one. Well, with that said, I want us this morning to look at our text in uh, three sections. And as we do so, remember that Jesus is speaking of both the penultimate and ultimate days of judgment. He's speaking of both 70 AD and his second coming. And the first section of this passage is found in verses 25 through 28, a section we can call the coming of the Son of Man. This section opens up with some very strange language. It speaks of signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the question is, how are we to understand this type of language? Well, we talked a little bit about this last week. But here, again, we have examples of prophetic language which is often used in the Old Testament to describe catastrophic events which were manifestations of God's judgment. Commentators are very quick to point out that much of what Jesus says here is basically quotations from passages like Joel chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, Isaiah 13, and so on. And when the Old Testament prophets spoke about coming judgment events, be it the conquering of the northern or the southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the conquering and the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, events like this, this is the type of language they would often use. And Jesus, in this prophetic moment, in the Olivet Discourse, continues to stand in the tradition of the Old Testament prophet by using this sort of language. And no doubt, it can be hard to know how much of this language is literal and how much of it is symbolic, meant to express just how terrible it will be when God's judgment is unleashed and I would say if we are to understand this language as being literal then you have to reconcile the fact that these events would have probably happened at least four or five times already just through the Old Testament era this is more than likely a huge use of symbolic language but it is interesting in the days of the fall of Jerusalem the Jewish historian Joseph, Josephus, who understand the reason why we quote Josephus as it concerns this event is because he was a Jewish historian who is, who was not a believer in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He might, he was what you might say, a secular Jew who was an eyewitness to the events of the fall of Jerusalem. He did record that many people testified to seeing signs in the sky, something like a chariot of fire leaving the temple as the Romans were approaching it. And he says, people even heard a voice crying out, saying, we are departing hence. As if the glory of the triune God was indeed departing the city of Jerusalem. It's very similar to what the prophet Ezekiel recorded seeing and hearing when the glory of God departed the first temple built by Solomon in in Jerusalem as the Babylonians were destroying it. You can read about that. Ezekiel chapter 10. Again, how much of this is literal? How much of it is symbolic language? The apostles hearing this discourse probably did not know the answer to that question until after they lived through the fall of Jerusalem. Likewise, we ourselves may not fully understand until we are on the other side of the final day of judgment just how much of this language is literal and how much is symbolic. But do not miss the results. Do not miss what the result of these types of signs and events are. The result is people are fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. That, beloved, is certainly how many Jews responded to the terrible events of 70 AD, fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. And I have no doubt that as history continues its march towards the final day of judgment, we have and we will continue to see people who are looking at the world around them fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. And it is then that Jesus tells his disciples, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Here, of course, is the statement which many believe signifies to us That Jesus is no longer speaking of 70 A.D., but instead is speaking of his second coming. And again, as I said last week, that is a perfectly reasonable position to take. After all, we know the second coming of Christ did not take place in 70 A.D., and language like seeing the Son of Man coming in glory and power is definitely language which can reference Christ's second coming. Some skeptics will argue that if Jesus is speaking of 70 AD here and he did not return in power and glory, well, then Jesus got it wrong. And if Jesus got it wrong, we shouldn't believe him on anything, he says. In order to avoid that problem, again, I think reasonably people say Jesus is no longer speaking of the attack of Jerusalem by Titus. But instead, he is now speaking of the final day of judgment. There's another way to understand this statement, beloved. Another biblically faithful way to interpret what Jesus meant when he said that the disciples would see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And that is to understand That when the fall of Jerusalem occurred in 70 AD, Jesus Christ was, in a very real sense, coming in power and glory through that act of judgment. He was not coming physically. He will come physically one day, but in 70 AD, he was not coming physically. That is very important. He was not leaving his throne at the right hand of the majesty on high like he will at his second and final coming. But instead, the judgment that was being unleashed upon that unbelieving generation of Israel was indeed a manifestation of Jesus Christ's judgment, power, glory, and yes, even his kingdom. Jesus Christ, beloved... I think we forget this. Don't forget it. Jesus Christ is, in the Bible, the agent of judgment. Even in the Old Testament, that was true. It was the pre-incarnate Christ, that is, the eternal Son of God, before He took on flesh and dwelt among us. It is the pre-incarnate Christ who is called the Destroyer, in Exodus 12, visiting the household of the Egyptians and striking down their firstborn. It was the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, who executed judgment upon the people of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, it was the angel of the Lord who brought judgment upon the Assyrian camp in Second Kings 19. It was the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, Standing with a sword at the ready who confronted Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. And so when Jesus tells his disciples that they would see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, it did not necessarily mean that they would literally, physically see Jesus standing in the clouds, but instead they would see a manifestation of of the Son of Man. Matthew actually records Jesus as saying they would see the sign, the sign of the Son of Man, his power, glory, and kingdom as he, the agent of judgment, would execute his judgment against the unbelieving Israelites in 70 AD. I believe, beloved, that is a perfectly biblical way. To understand Christ's words when he tells the disciples that after seeing all those cosmic and earth-shaking events, they would see him coming in power and glory. I believe this is, again, the foothills, the foothills fulfillment of this prophecy. But, for us, do not forget the mountains standing Behind the foothills, the mountains of Christ's final judgment. A day, beloved, when all the world will indeed see the Son of Man with their physical eyes coming in glory and power. Coming physically, not just through a manifestation of his glory, power, and kingdom and judgment, but actually physically coming. That day will fill the world with fear. People will faint and cry out, What is coming upon the world, beloved? What will come upon the world in that day is the wrath of the Lamb who is returning to judge the living and the dead. And for those in this world who have spent their lives rejecting Jesus Christ the Messiah for those who have spent their lives refusing to bow their knee before Him in humble repentance, receive Him by faith, that day will seal their eternal condemnation. Nothing, nothing, brothers and sisters and friends, is more terrifying than that. Nothing will be more terrifying than to be made To stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and not have your sin, your unholiness, your uncleanliness washed away by his precious blood. But do not forget the words of verse 28. The words Jesus tells his disciples, those who do follow him, those who have received him by faith, His words to straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When Christ returns in power and glory, when the full consummation of his kingdom comes upon this world, for those who follow, for those who trust in For those who love Jesus Christ, it will not be our day of judgment. It will be the day of our resurrection and the day of our redemption. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism words all of this. It just summarizes the hope of the believer on that final day of judgment so well when it says, question 38, that the benefits believers receive on that great and final day are that first, We will be raised up in glory. Secondly, we will be acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Thirdly, we will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Straighten up. Raise your heads. Your redemption, beloved, is drawing near. Well, that brings us to the second section of our text today. If you are a time watcher, don't worry. We will cover these last two sections quickly. The second section, verses 29 through 33, the parable of the fig tree. Now, Christ's point in all of this, I could summarize this whole section by just making his main point. His point in all of this is that if you can look at the trees and know that the summer is approaching and you should be able to look at the world and know that the full consummation of God's kingdom is near again in the days of his disciples Jesus is saying to them listen to me Don't forget what I told you. You asked me when these events would take place. I am telling you, when you see everything I've described to you, you need to know that this great act of judgment against Israel is close at hand. And Jesus gets even more specific with his disciples. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, as I said last week, had Jesus not made that statement, we probably would not debate this passage as much as we do today. Had he not said that, I don't think there would be a problem, really, in understanding the passage. But he did say it. He did say it. And while there are different ways to understand the phrase, this generation... It seems that the most natural, if you want to use that word, the most natural way of understanding this generation is that it refers to a time period of about 40 years. And so he's telling his disciples, many of you will be alive to see this. But the phrase this generation can also mean a broader group of people and a broader scope of time. We can't forget this. We can't neglect this reality. It can be a phrase which describes all those who live during a certain age, despite the fact that that age encompasses several lifetimes. Jesus himself uses the phrase, this generation in this way, earlier in Luke chapter 11, when he charges this generation of unbelieving religious leaders of Israel with the blood of the Old Testament prophets. Now, clearly, when Jesus says that, the scope of this generation in that context goes well beyond the unbelieving Jews he was speaking to in that moment. It included the unbelieving Jews in the days when the Old Testament prophets were indeed put to death. And in light of understanding biblical prophecy... Of having, as having both an immediate fulfillment and a far-off fulfillment, it is not beyond the scope of this passage to believe that Jesus is using the phrase this generation with a broad definition. As it concerns the events of 70 AD, Jesus was 100% correct. All the events he prophesied about in this passage were indeed fulfilled within a generation, about 40 years, of him giving this discourse. And as for the broader meaning of this generation, which would include you and I and everyone who lives in this, quote, final age, which expands from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven until the day of his final return, Jesus, too, is absolutely right. The generation alive in this final age will indeed see the second coming of Christ. And the fact that there was an immediate fulfillment to his prophecies in this passage, the fact that things, that the things Christ spoke about were fulfilled within a generation's time, beloved, understand something. That should give us today the utmost confidence in his words here. We sometimes, I think, can be discouraged, and even as his disciples be tempted to believe, because it seems from the human perspective that Jesus is tarrying then he may never come again. He may never come to judge the living and the dead and bring us into everlasting enjoyment of God. But he will. We know he will because he came in judgment in 70 AD just as he said he would. We should have the utmost confidence in what Jesus says and, and affirm his great declaration in verse 33 when he says, Heaven And earth will not pass, or heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus was declaring to his disciples, he is declaring to us today, that although the world may be shaken although it may seem as if this world is going to end, although it seems like everything around us is being brought to destruction and ruin, His word, His promises, beloved, are indeed eternal. We can hope in, trust in, rest in the great promise that one day Jesus will return in power and glory and fully consummate His kingdom. That one day, Jesus will return and bring about our complete eternal redemption. The fact that there was a penultimate and immediate fulfillment to his prophecies in 70 AD gives us our assurance that he will keep his word. This assurance and the promises and the words of Jesus, it brings us to the third and final section of our passage today, verses 34 through 36. A section which is really, ultimately, Christ's application to us, his disciples, living in an age which will end in final judgment. His words here, watch yourself. How are God's people supposed to live in the final age? How is this generation today supposed to live and act? In the same manner that the disciples in that generation were to live and act leading up to the judgment day that they would experience in 70 AD by watching themselves. Making sure that our hearts are not weighed down with dissipation, meaning a steep moral decline into sexual immorality and drunkenness. Watch ourselves to make sure we don't get wrapped up in the cares of this life so that when Christ does return, it does not come upon us suddenly like a trap. Beloved, Jesus is calling us in this final portion of our text today to strive after faithfulness, to, in a sense, make our election sure, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, making sure that what we say we believe is not merely a confession of our lips, but is also the deep-seated belief of our hearts. We are to be alert. We are to pray. We are to pursue communion with God, so that when final judgment comes, and it will, we know it will, when final judgment does come, what we confess with our lips will be the sure foundation of our hearts, and we will indeed escape judgment, stand before the Son of Man, and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant.